time. We're excited to be back. Um, and it's a special blessing to me that I get to do this today. Uh, my wife reminded me this. This is the first time that my kids have heard me preach. And so to be able to look out and see them is really, really cool. Uh, as we get started, I need to make amends for something I did last time I stood up here. So last time I stood up here, I shared some pictures of the kids, and then I shared a picture of my wife, which I thought was timely and explained why she wasn't with us last time we were here. Um, she had a patch on her eye and kind of looked like, looked like a pirate. And so I thought it was funny. Not everyone thought it was funny. So I have a picture to share with you to help make amends. So this is, if the picture comes up, this is my wife and our kids, Samuel and Natalie, uh, last weekend on Mother's Day. So now that that's out of the way, now that I've made amends, uh, let, let's dive in, okay? We're going to be in Matthew chapter 6 today. Matthew chapter 6. And our passage this morning is in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus directs the Sermon on the Mount primarily to his disciples, but the crowd there also hears what's going on. And the ethics that he's going to teach, again, are for Christ's followers, but the crowd there gets to learn what genuine disciple, discipleship looks like, and they get to kind of see the possibility of following Jesus. They get to see the cost. They get to see what it means to follow Jesus. Okay? Sermon on the Mount is a call for the church to live according to the values of the kingdom. And as citizens of the kingdom, Christ's disciples live under the rule of God, not the rule of society, not the rule of the world, but under God. And scholars consider the Sermon on the Mount to be a model for a contrast community in today's world. So that community Christ is building, that community in the church, is made to stand out, to shine bright in a dark world around it. Drawing from the Beatitudes in the Sermon on the Mount, this community, this church that he's building, participates in restoring the broken world to its natural order, is dependent on God and aware of its spiritual poverty without Christ, pursues righteousness as God's way of setting all things right, and endures suffering for the sake of what is right. The Sermon on the Mount provides teachings that help us live according to Jesus' commands. And it's the clearest picture we get of what Christian ethics or just living day-to-day -day as a Christian looks like. He urges his believers to be the salt and the light. He urges them to forgive and reconcile quickly. And he urges them to pray unselfishly for the kingdom. The Sermon on the Mount calls us not just to believing in Christ, but to radical discipleship. He instructs his disciples, be perfect, therefore, just as your heavenly Father is perfect. And his teaching cannot simply be converted into a set of rules and regulations. So that is, he does not ask us to be totally committed to rules and laws and things like that, but rather he wants us to be totally committed to him. As we get started, I, I want to make a few things clear. I think they're probably clear, but I want to touch on them nonetheless. Uh, the first disclaimer I have is that I am not a doctor. Okay, That shouldn't surprise anybody. You've known me a long time. Over-anxiety is a very real thing. Okay, And if you have issues like that or if you've got medication for that, there's nothing wrong with that. But the worry that we're going to talk about today is the kind of anxiety that is the opposite of faith. Okay, It's what robs our faith and turns our attention away from God and onto the world around us. The second disclaimer is uh, this passage is not an excuse not to work. There have been some people in history who have seen this passage and think, you know what, I don't have to plan, I don't have to work, I don't have to save, 
I don't have to do anything because God will provide. God is good, and God will provide. But you know what? We have to work hard today in the right ways and then leave tomorrow and it stresses to God. All right, so let's go to Matthew chapter 6, and we're going to pick it up in verse 25. One of the things that I really like about this passage, and I think is amazing, is that I don't have to add a whole lot to it. Jesus' words are as clear and easy to understand and totally applicable today, 2,000 years later, as they were for the disciples and for the hearers on that mountain 2,000 years ago. All right, 25. Therefore, I tell you, don't worry about your life. That's our command. That's what he's telling us right there. And that's what we're going to spend the rest of our morning talking about. Okay? Do not worry. Jesus isn't calling us not to think about what's going on around us, or not to plan, or not to work. But rather, he's telling us don't be anxious. Don't stress about it. Don't worry about it. And I'd never really considered it this way until I started reading this passage and trying to understand what I was going to say to you about it. Uh, but really, worry is the antithesis of faith. It's the opposite of faith. Matt Chandler says it this way. The bottom line in most fear and anxiety is you simply don't trust that God is good. And that convicts me. Look at me. Don't lie about that. There's no freedom for you if you can't say, I don't trust that you're good. I don't trust that you have my best interests. I don't trust that you're going to provide for me. I don't trust that you're good enough. I don't trust that you'll be enough for me. So I have to take it, and I have to worry about it and keep it my own. Let's go back, and let's read 25 again and keep going. Do not worry about your life, what you will eat, or what you will drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Isn't life more than food and the body more than clothing? Ultimately, life is far, far more important than these just kind of casual, mundane things around us, despite what you know Instagram may say about fancy food or fancy clothes or anything like that. Life is so much more than that. Okay, 26, consider the birds of the sky. They don't sow or reap or gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Aren't you worth more than them? If God cares for the animals that he created, which he does, will he not also care for us? The birds, uh, the birds have to find their food, but it's God who provides it for them. And it's the same for us. Just like the birds, God provides for us, but we have to go out and work for it. We have to go out and harvest it. We have to do our part, but God will provide. 27, verse 27. Can any of you add one moment to his lifespan by worrying? And that, that's the crazy thing about worrying is it has absolutely no fruit. It has absolutely no benefit for us. Worrying or stressing about a situation is not going to help us be an inch taller. It's not going to help us live a day longer. It might actually do the opposite. But worrying has no fruit. It will not do anything for us. 28. And why do you worry about clothes? Observe how the wildflowers of the field grow. They don't labor or spin thread. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all of his splendor was adorned like one of these. If God cares for the grass and the trees and the flowers and everything else, again, how will he not also care for you and me? He absolutely will. But at the same time, this is way easier to say than it is to apply. right? It's way easier for us to talk about and discuss than it is for our hearts to really understand. The big moments in my life tend to pile up on a certain few days. May 4th, 2007 was one of those days. Um, this was my first real date with this girl that I really liked. 
um, you can do the math, okay? I really liked her, okay? Uh, and I took her out to eat, and then after that, on this beautiful spring evening, I took her to the movie theater where this movie was going to debut. It was opening night. We stood in line. We got to the front, uh, only to learn out that the tickets had sold out. And so, dejected, we turn around and start walking back to the car, and I say, you know what? Maybe these tickets will work, these ones that I bought earlier today. Because, you know, I was that smooth. I got lucky. Anyways, <laughs> um, thank you for putting up with me. <laughs> so the movie, Spider-Man 3, was not the only big thing that happened that night. So that night, 300 miles away, at about the same time, a tornado would hit Greensburg, Kansas. Um, the storm was the most powerful storm to hit the United States in like a five-year window. And the tornado was so wide and moved so slowly that most of the town was inside the tornado for more than 20 minutes, which I just, I, I can't fathom, one, the strength of that storm and then to be stuck inside it for 20 minutes. Only one building in the entire town was left standing, and the winds were strong enough that even the railroad lines were bent. That spring, I wanted to get involved in ministry. I wanted to serve however I could. I applied all over the country. I applied on the East Coast for opportunities. I applied to help down uh, in New Orleans after Hurricane Katrina. This was about a year and a half later and was still needing a lot of work. I applied everywhere. I didn't hear a whole lot back. But later that spring, on the same day, I would get three job offers. Again, like I said, these big things pile up in one day for me. I got three offers in one morning. I could go and I could sell warranties at Sears. Uh, I could go and I could sell t-shirts downtown, or I could go and I could serve in Greensburg, Kansas. And I, I didn't think about it. Some people have to plan and think. I, I jumped at the opportunity. I knew that God would provide. But what's crazy is, and what's sad is, that faith I had to jump in wouldn't last, wouldn't serve me forever. Um, <clears throat> real fast, this is a picture of me and Pastor Marvin George. So, you can see me, and you can see just the devastation behind it there. All the tree limbs are gone, and just the trunks are left in this entire town. I served for two weeks solid. The town was destroyed. Every building was destroyed. So at sundown, the Kansas uh, Highway Patrol kicked everybody out. The church found a temporary spot for me to live about 40 minutes away with a family. But driving 40 minutes each way, paying for gas, doing all this, it really, really weighed on me. I got burnout. And really, I, I got just spent emotionally, physically, and financially. And so I remember one Saturday morning pulling off uh, the road in Pratt, Kansas, uh, pulling into a parking space on Main Street, and just breaking down. I was broken. I was alone. I was broke. And I had no idea what God's plan for my life was. I really didn't. I came down to Greensburg to serve, and I really didn't even have a permanent roof over my head. The next morning, I went to church in Greensburg uh, under a big tent in the city park because, again, everything was destroyed. I spent the entire time praying and just asking God, you know, what, what's next? So after the service, I, I spoke to the pastor and told him what was on my heart. And Pastor Marvin pulled out an envelope out of his pocket, and he handed me the envelope. The envelope had $500 in it, and someone not five minutes earlier had given it to him and said, God will know where this is supposed to go. And I thought that was incredibly powerful. It helped remind me that God is in control of all things. 
Um, good times and bad. This was obviously a good moment, but good times and bad. God is in complete control. And it would just be a couple days later where uh, the Kansas-Nebraska Convention of Southern Baptists would help support me too so I could stay and I could serve all summer. We have to remember how God has moved both in our lives and in the lives of the saints. God is faithful now and God has been faithful in the past, so we have to know that he will be faithful in the future. An old hymn written by Philip Doddridge has the lines, O God of Bethel, by whose hand thy people still are fed, who through this weary pilgrimage hast all our fathers led. He's led us through the past. He's going to lead us in the future. I know you have your own examples of God's grace and God's love and God's providence and God's provision in your own life, but i got to share one more of mine. Okay? Uh, I remember the joy and the excitement when I found out that Gayla was pregnant with our first kid, Samuel. Uh, i got to say, nine months is way too long to wait for a baby to grow. Okay? If you need to get formula, you need to get diapers, you need to get a high chair, you need to get a car seat, you need to do all that, you can do it all in a month. That leaves eight months to stress out and worry. Okay? At that time, I worked at a wonderful church. Again, you can kind of do the math on that one. You may know them. I worked part-time also at a computer company, and I really needed something to replace that part-time work at the computer company. Okay? I prayed and laid in bed stressing every night for nine months. Give me an opportunity. Okay? I need, a, I need better income. I need better health insurance. I need something. Okay? And I applied for hundreds of jobs, had dozens of interviews, and no job offer came. God seemed distant. He didn't seem to hear me. He didn't seem to care. Uh, and I'll say the nurse who called and recommended that we get a sonogram uh, at a cost of an extra like $2,500 didn't help things either. Made me stress about my son's health. Made me stress about finances even more. But I can say uh, that I am so, so thankful that my son is happy and healthy and everything. And it's incredible to see how God has moved in my life. But I tell you all these things because, again, thinking of big moments in my life, uh, one morning in January when my wife was more than nine months pregnant, we went to the doctor's office. And the doctor told us, you know what, we can't wait on Samuel to come out anymore. We've got to go in after him. So he was, uh, they were going to induce, and I found out I'm going to meet my son for the first time not 24 hours later. And that was huge. That was incredible to know 24 hours later I'd get to hold my son in my arms. I called my folks. I ordered pizza. We were going to celebrate one more big time before the baby came. I carried the pizza in, and before I could even dive into the pizza, my phone rang. The school district called, and they said, you know what? We're not going to give you the job that you interviewed for. We're going to give you a better one. I'm like, oh, okay. I'll take it. God is good. God is good. I tell you these things because I'm not the hero of these stories, and I know that you have these stories in your own life too. God is the hero. And he moves in my life not because of who I am or anything that I earn, but it's because of his grace and his love. And just like we see in verse 32, he knows our every need, and God is going to provide for them. We want to do something on our own. Really, we want to do everything on our own. That's kind of what our culture teaches us especially as men, is that we have to do things on our own to be powerful. But God puts moments in our life, like me in Greensburg or me with my son, to teach us to wait on him, to wait on his provision, to wait on his time, to teach us that he is in control. He's more than enough, but do we live like he's more than enough? i got to say that again. Do we live like he's more than enough? Do our lives reflect that? Do our words 
or how we spend our money reflect that. I mentioned earlier that the Sermon on the Mount serves as a model for community that shines in contrast to the world around it. Does your life look any different than your neighbor's who doesn't go to church? Or do you guys think the exact same, talk the exact same, and hope the exact same? I hope not. If our hope, and we have total faith in Jesus providing, that ought to shape everything that we do. and We ought to let Christ control everything that we do. Let's go back to our passage. We're going to pick it back up in 30. <clears throat> All right, 30. If that's how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and thrown into the furnace tomorrow, won't he do much more for you? You of little faith. Now, I really enjoy the CSB Bible I'm reading from, but it just doesn't compare to how the King James does that. King James says, O ye of little faith. So don't worry, saying, what will we eat, or what will we drink, or what will we wear? For the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. Real fast, if we worry, we are no better than the world around us who does not know God, who doesn't have access to God, who doesn't trust in our Heavenly Father. If we doubt, despite everything that we see in our own lives or despite the access we have to Jesus, we're no better than the world around us. Is God enough? And how much God do we want? Do we want more than enough, or do we want just enough to save us? Which it really isn't enough at all. I love what Martin Lloyd-Jones said about this passage. He wrote that, this is what it all amounts to. The real cause of the trouble is your failure to draw obvious deductions from the birds and the flowers. But coupled with that, there is an obvious lack of faith. O oh, ye of little faith. That is the ultimate cause of the trouble. He continues, our Lord is speaking here about Christian people who have only saving faith and who tend to stop at that. Those are the people about whom he is concerned. And his desire is that they should be led, as a result of listening to him, to a larger and deeper faith. Many of us, uh, and for that matter, a lot of the world around us, believes in a Jesus Christ. But we don't just believe in him, we believe him. There's a difference there. Further, if we believe him for the salvation of our souls and all the big things, how will he also not provide for us? for our daily needs, the seemingly small things. If he's faithful to us in the big moments, he's going to be faithful to us in the small ones as well. He provides daily. We have this tendency to think that uh, our Christian life is just you know, a series of maybe one or two big moments. You know, I walk an aisle, I get baptized, I make a profession. But then what do I do with the rest of my life? Jesus Christ is faithful to us every single day, and he ex expects the same out of us. He expects us to be live, or expects us to live totally surrendered to Him every single day as well. Every moment, every thought, every dollar, every word ultimately is His. Christian, listen to me. We have to move past this little faith or having just enough Jesus to get us out of hell. We don't believe some of what He says. We have to believe all and remember all. He is not Lord of some things or Lord of Sundays and Wednesdays. He is Lord of everything. He is Lord of all and in control of all. He is Lord and he gets the glory and the honor and the good times and the bad. Real fast, let's think about these passages. Hebrews 13.5 tells us, Keep your life free from love of money, 
Be satisfied with what you have, for he himself has said, I will never leave you or abandon you. Romans 5.10, For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God through the death of his Son, then how much more, having been reconciled, will, he be, or will we be saved by his life? Matthew 11.28, Come to me, all of you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take up my yoke and learn from me, because I am lowly and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. And lastly, Luke 11. So I say to you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives. And the one who seeks, finds. And the one who knocks, the door will be opened. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will give him a snake instead of a fish? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? That last passage is crucial for us getting rid of this worry. God is not some distant being, some distant power who is unfamiliar with our needs or our wants. Jesus Christ was fully human and fully experienced everything that we have been through. He understands what we're going through, and he will provide for that. Further, He is, God is our Heavenly Father. Okay? He knows us intimately. Many of us had really good dads. They may have been flawed, but they were good nonetheless. They worked hard for us. They provided for us. They kept us safe. They gave us food. They did everything they could. But they, at the end of the day, were just as fallen and broken as we are. How much more will our Heavenly Father do than our, our earthly fathers? We don't believe some of the Bible. We believe all of it. And everything he promises, he's going to deliver. Dr. Lloyd-Jones, again, sums it up far, far better than I ever could. He says, This little faith is ultimately due to a failure to apply what we know and claim to believe. To the circumstances and details of life. I can put that in a phrase. Do you remember the famous incident in our Lord's earthly life and ministry when he was sleeping in the stern of the ship and the water began to come in? The sea had become boisterous and the disciples became worried and anxious and said, Master, carest thou not that we perish? His reply to them summarizes perfectly all we've said. Where? Where is your faith? You have it, but where is it? Or if you like, he said, why don't you apply your faith to this? You see, it's not enough to say we have faith. We must apply our faith. We must relate it. We must see that it is where it ought to be at any moment. It's a poor type of Christianity that has this wonderful faith with regards to salvation and then whimpers and cries when confronted by the daily trials of life. We have to apply our faith. little faith isn't going to get the job done. We get the context for this passage and the application for it when we look at the verses that come before it and that come after it. So let's back up a few verses. We're going to go to 19 and go 19 through 24. It says, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves don't break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Our big problem with worldliness is that it's always there. It's always confronting us. The problem can present itself in a couple different ways. We can store up these earthly treasures, or we can worry about them. And either way, both of those take our eyes, take our affection, take our mind off of Jesus Christ. 
Craig, Craig Blomberg uh, wrote, Many perceptive observers have sensed that the greatest danger to Western Christianity is not, as is sometimes alleged, prevailing ideologies such as Marxism, Islam, the New Age movement, or humanism, but rather the all-pervasive materialism of our affluent culture. Blomberg wrote that almost 30 years ago. Okay, So he wrote that in a world that was before cell phones. He wrote that before the internet, before social media, before email, before YouTube, Amazon, and so much more. And yet his words ring even more true today than they did then. And you know what? I, I sometimes fall into this trap too. I sometimes think that you know if I have some extra product, some extra thing, then somehow my spiritual life will be made more healthy, which I know that's outrageous, right? That's crazy to think that because the people who make all the junk around us don't really care about my spiritual health in the slightest. We recently got uh, an Amazon smart speaker that also had a screen built into it. In theory, it's really, really cool. So you can listen to music. You can read recipes while you cook. You can watch videos. You can call and talk to people, all kinds of other cool stuff. Uh, but when it's not showing me pictures of my family, it is showing me news and ads that are curated by Amazon. Amazon doesn't care about me spiritually. They want me more connected so that I can consume more. And you know what? If I am constantly connected, constantly consuming, where is the quiet time? Where is the space in my life for God to work and for me to focus on God? Okay? We have to get rid of this junk. The biggest threat to our faith and to the church in America isn't liberalism or any other kind of ism. The biggest threat is the junk we let into our lives and into our homes that rob us of our joy of Christ. We have forgotten that the things that we enjoy in this world are really God's good gift to us. Christianity doesn't work if Christ isn't king of our heart, king of our entertainment, king of our words, king of our calendar, and king of our checking account. Perhaps that's why we worry so much. Perhaps that's why we never get past little faith. We never have been more connected, and yet somehow we've never worried more than we are now. At least that's, that's what I sense. Okay? We've never had access to more stuff. We've never had access to more whatever, and yet we've never been this worried. Perhaps uh, that's why antidepressant use among young people has gone up 48% in the last 10 years. Our wealth and our identity cannot be in anything other than Jesus Christ. Banks fail, stock markets crash, cars rust, homes fall apart, and you know what? My body ages. The same is true for status or relationships. I did not get to serve at Cornerstone forever. I may not get to be Sam and Natalie's daddy forever. Or, if nothing else, the days where I get to wake up with them in my house are finite. I only get so many days where I get to live in the same house as them. So my identity cannot come from that. Friends may not last. Job opportunities may, may not last. My identity cannot be in anything else than being a disciple of Jesus Christ. Only he lasts forever. Only he reigns forever. Let's go back to 22. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. So, if the light within you is darkness, how deep is that darkness? 24. No one can serve two masters, since either he will hate one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. 
You cannot serve both God and money. 24 says it all. You cannot serve God and money. But really, you cannot love God and whatever else. You fill in the blank. You cannot love God and sin. You cannot love God and fame. You cannot love God and whatever. You love God. Period. This uh, this example is a little bit outrageous, so I apologize for it in advance. Uh, but if I bring home another woman, I said, Gala, this is so-and-so. Meet so-and-so. I love her, and she's going to live in one of our houses with us forever. How would that go? Probably not that well, would it? That's not how love works. That's not how relationships work. That's not how marriage works. And yet, we do the same thing with our relationship with God. We try to love God and money or God and something else. And if we try to do that, it ends just as poorly as me trying to say, Gala, I want to love this person or this thing too, right? I have to be committed to my wife and I have to be committed to Christ alone. Which, Anna, thank you, by the way, for picking In Christ Alone. Uh, that, that's one of my favorite songs, and I, I think she knew that. But at the same time, our hope has to be in Christ alone, only him. We're going to wrap up with verses 33 and 34. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be, uh, will be provided for you. Therefore, don't worry about tomorrow, because tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. That right there is how we live it out, okay? That, that's how we actually get past worry. Seeking first the kingdom of God is our practical effort to combat worry in our life. I've got a few little tips that we can do that we can try to pay attention to so we can move past worry. The first is this. We put him first and let him worry about tomorrow. We have to get rid of worldliness, okay? I was thinking about this uh, sitting in the pew before I came up. I, I was thinking of Romans 12 where it talks about we are surrounded by, what, a great cloud of witnesses. And so we have to cast off every weight, every hindrance, every snare, every trap, so we can run with endurance the race that lies before us. This is kind of a theology bomb for you. This is big. I need you to catch this. If there is sin in our life, we have to get rid of it, because sin is bad. Make sense? Okay. Romans 12 also teaches us it's not just the bad stuff we have to get rid of. It's the spiritually neutral stuff, the stuff that distracts us, the junk in our life, the things that rob us of our affection of Christ. We have to get rid of all the things that trip us up so that we can love Christ more. Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote, When Christ calls a man, he bids him to come and die. Our old life, our old love of sin, our money, our dreams, everything has to be laid down at the foot of the cross. So we can follow Christ without looking back on the world or our old life. We live totally surrendered to Jesus Christ. Secondly, we keep his commandments. This is how we seek the kingdom of God. John 14, 15 tells us this. If you love me, keep my commandments. Third, we endure. The Christian life is not promised to be a picnic. Uh, There are some preachers who would encourage you to think that if you don't have an awesome house or a ton of money or anything else, then you're doing something wrong or you've disappointed God or God's not providing. That's as far from the truth as it could possibly be. Christ doesn't promise us fame or wealth or health or happiness or anything, and the Bible promises us something different. Okay? This world wars against us. This world will be tough. This world will distract us. This world, uh, world will fight us. But God is more than enough, and God will provide 
Troubles come, but God's care and his provision will always be there. And then lastly, we believe and we don't look back. We remember Lot's wife, or we remember our doubting Thomas. But in Luke 9, 62, it says, But Jesus said to him, No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. There should never be a day in our lives when we fail to thank God for the gift of life and food and existence and then marvel at the wonder of the body that he has given us. These things are entirely his. I didn't do anything to earn them. You didn't do anything to earn them. They are his gift. And if if we fail to realize that, we're going to fail in everything else as well. God provides in small ways and big ways. He doesn't want us to fret. He gives us a method for getting things. He insists on being first, and I pray that he is. But I know that uh, that's probably not true for everyone in the room. Okay? He needs to be first. We have to rearrange our lives to make him first. Pastor Eugene Peterson uh, passed away in October of last year. He wrote about 100 books in his lifetime, pastored a church for almost 30 years. And for all that work, uh, when he passed away, his son said, really, he had one sermon. Through it all, I mean, countless pages of work, countless years of work, he had one sermon. They all came back to the same message, that God loves you. God is on your side. He is coming after you, and he is relentless. I think we see this same message in the Sermon on the Mount. Christ isn't giving us a rule book to follow. He isn't after legalism. He's after our heart. He wants our love, our faith, and everything about us he wants. If you don't know Jesus Christ but you're tired of worry, tired of anxiety, tired of the empty promises of the world, there is not a better day for you to surrender everything and follow Jesus. Or if you're a Christian, but you're ready to go from being some of little faith to the deeper end, to a deep faith, this is a great chance to. Here in a moment, uh, we're going to pray, and you have that chance to respond, be it in your pew or up at the front with Gary and me. Uh, I just pray that you do whatever God is leading you. Thank you for your, or just the opportunity to be here with you today. Uh, we love you. Let's pray. Father, thank you for how you've provided for us in the past, for how you equip us for today, and how you will take care of us tomorrow. Help us to remember that you've blessed us and how you've moved in the life of the church and in our own lives. Help us not just to believe in you, but to fully believe you and your word. Forgive us when our worries and our stress overtake us and we lose sight of you. Show us our sin. Show us where we are living for the world and not for you and help us to radically trust you and radically reorientate our lives so that we might follow you in everything. Follow you with our life, our time, our money, our words, and our dreams. The answer to everything is never better budgeting or better reading or reading a book or buying a product to be more positive. The answer is to surrender everything to you. Help us do that. Thank you for making a way. It's in your beautiful name I pray.